Dear friends, Victor Austin invited me to take this occasion to reflect theologically on that event that Jonathan just referred to. Like a bolt out of the blue, the neurologist said to me, stricken, as I lay in the intensive care union unit at Union Memorial Hospital here in Baltimore. Like a bolt out of the blue, that's why we call it a stroke. Suddenly struck down. In this respect, similar to what befell Paul on the road to Damascus, unanticipated and without forewarning. But a connection of Paul the Apostle, who became the Apostle of the Crucified and Risen One, with this Paul, Latter-day Lutheran theologian, is more than fortuitous. Dear friends, how often I appropriated Paul in those trying moments. I held on especially to a snippet from my ordination sermon text from many years before, full well knowing at the same time the dissimilarity between Paul's sense as one persecuted from without and my own appropriation of it as one injured from within, struck down but not destroyed. Having said goodbyes to attendees and a group of students from Roanoke College, as such as I have with me here tonight, we were descending that stairwell from the third, fourth floor up there from the conference place on our way to the board meeting of the Center for Catholic and Evangelical Theology. Construction was going on outside two years ago with a huge concrete pumping machine at work. I turned back to behold the technological marvel through those glass walls and collapsed on the staircase. Dazed, I was helped to my feet. I thought I'd missed my step, fallen and struck my jaw on the handrail. I stammered that I thought I had a concussion. Unbelievably, in hindsight, I walked with assistance all the way down the staircase until those around me forced me to sit down. Through the fog, I perceived all of them concerned at my appearance, and I distinctly recall Carl Broughton giving the order to call the ambulance. As the ambulance sped me to the stroke unit at Union Memorial, the medic attending me said, I hate to tell you this, buddy, but I think you're having a stroke. <clears throat> Cognitive dissonance, another resemblance to what Saul knocked off his high horse on the road to Damascus experienced. What could it mean that the crucified blasphemer whose spreading cult 
Saul was determined to arrest, now appeared to him in glory, identifying as if in his own body with those very ones whom Saul was persecuting. My dissonance, cognitively, was in this respect similar. You see, three weeks before, I had been in the Canadian Rockies for a theological conference, and on an afternoon off, I hiked with some of my hosts five steep uphill miles to view spectacular waterfalls. Healthy as a horse, am I? What on earth had just happened to me? Perplexed, but not forsaken. Another echo of 2 Corinthians 4 came to me. Friends, if you have to have a stroke, it couldn't have happened at a better time and place or with better company. In my confusion, I, have may, I may have forgotten some, but I particularly remember the special care afforded to me and on my behalf to my distraught loved ones by Michael Root and Jim Buckley, Dwight Penis, Gregory and Carol Fryer. I was not forsaken, but I was perplexed. What's the good of humanity? That's the theological question which our conference has addressed. What's the good of one little individual human life? That's the existential version of our question which pressed hard on me upon my muddled mind in those first 48 hours while I was on neurosurgical watch. Awakened regularly and interrogated to the point of exasperation as they monitored the function of my damaged brain. What good am I now? An existential version of that more essentialist question about the good of humanity in general. It is especially fitting, I suppose, for a Lutheran theologian to meditate on. Now, friends, it may be a manifestation of recklessness in my character, and it may be just the deep tranquility of faith I still can't tell the difference in myself. But I can honestly say, throughout the ordeal, I had no fear of death for my own sake. Rather, my thoughts went immediately to the suffering my untimely death would cause my loved ones. and especially my son, Will. Now, if I am in some respects still a Lutheran existentialist, it is coupled with the communitarian ontology of the beloved community. 
as the latter is both represented but also regularly betrayed by the, if I may, damning with faint praise, Rutul Leonard Brezhnev's notorious defense of Soviet communism, betrayed by the real existing church. In any case, already in the ambulance, the prayer that flitted through my bewildered mind heavenward was that the Lord would spare my little life at this juncture. Because it would be just too cruel for my son. Now, some of our speakers today got a little teary. And I have to warn you that one of the things a stroke does to you is damage the part of your brain that controls emotions. So I'm going to try to hold it together here. But it's a very much on my heart to say these things. <clears throat> Raised in a loving and adventurous family, maturing with strapping good looks, <laughs> and a keen mind filled with curiosity. Ellen and I were often baffled with the difficulties our son had launching during his 20s. It was only after he had moved back with us a few years before my stroke that the depth of his suffering became apparent until we were able finally to get a proper diagnosis of bipolar disorder. In breaking through to that painful discovery, he and I had grown very close. You see, he had felt forsaken so much in life, also by God. and consequently so drained of trust. That my renewed presence in his life in these difficult years built the bridge to which he could cling. For for his sake, I could not now die. So that was my prayer. As I, to use a colorful phrase of Martin Luther, lying in the ambulance, earnestly rubbed God's ears in his promises. Only later, as I reflected upon this spontaneous prayer, did I realize that as I have lived my life believing with Bonhoeffer that Jesus is the man for others, so I at that moment also believed about myself that even in my stricken state, 
debilitated, not knowing the future, I was still good for another. I spent a week at Union Memorial Hospital, which was also for me a study in contrasts between the excellent medical care that I received as a well-insured person and the striking class and racial and gendered divisions visible both within the ranks of those who served me and in those treated alongside of me. This provokes the question, is the good of my individual life little more than my privileged capacity to pay for it? Why shouldn't this excellent care be available to any and all? A previous church generation called Jesus our great physician. Healer of soul and body. And our present generation has learned with some success that ministry in Jesus' name cannot truthfully lay claim to the soul while leaving the body to the devil. A theme that almost all of our lecturers have reinforced this today and last night. The ministry of the reign of God, which Jesus inaugurates when he comes into Galilee, and please note the present tense with which I express this. That ministry is the work of healing. Faith and forgiveness for the guilty and despairing soul, but also sight for the blind mental freedom from the tyranny of unclean spirits, food for the hungry. The apocalyptic framework of the Gospels tells us that these healing works of Jesus were at once assaults on the devil's tyranny and foretastes of the promised resurrection. Aye, there's the rub dear fellow ministers of the gospel. Healing, however real, is temporary. Only the resurrection is everlasting. Pastors and priests and deacons and lay people who engage ministries of healing within their communities of faith wrestle with this evanescence of healing if I may put it this way, what scholars call the eschatological reservation. Healed, finished, done with, mission accomplished, time to move on. Wouldn't that be great? But faithful and persevering ministers of the gospel know better. As we are to be satisfied with daily bread, so we also must be satisfied with daily healing. The minister of the gospel is the one who keeps on keeping on, daily pulling body and soul from the pits into which they have fallen, knowing full well that tomorrow they may fall again into those pits, 
Here, successes are temporary because they are and can only be real as foretastes of something yet to come. Thus, the pastoral faith which ministers with which he ministers healing care is often on trial precisely because the kingdom comes until the kingdom comes in power and glory we are deprived of final resolutions so pauline perplexity at being struck down but not destroyed remains the insignia of the church militant. For the Christian, this life is becoming, not being, labor, not rest, healing, not wholeness. It is not by accident that in the great eighth chapter of Romans, Paul insists that with all creation, we need yet await in eager longing the redemption of our bodies. But friends, there's also a gift of clarity in the midst of that perplexity, if only we can faithfully abide in it. What humanity has in common is not a state of consciousness, but the state of bodiliness. It is that state of bodiliness which is foundational in that it connects human beings to one another and to the good earth, and only so, also to God, our Heavenly Father, common creator, redeemer, and fulfiller of bodily reality. The ontology of beloved community is thus existentially to be discovered, in the bodily reality of creation. This is a discovery, however, because the bodily reality of creation is distorted and obscured from sight by our uniquely human apostasy, which is the bone-deep despair of unbelief. Freed from sorrow, Freed from sin, creation's hope for the final victory of beloved community emerges in the midst of our brokenness for fresh perception and participation as the earthly body of the risen Lord as that comes on the scene and appears even here in the midst of our brokenness. Aye, here's the rub. Just so profoundly engaged, however, the body of Christ, too, in its engagement, becomes wounded. Riven by sinful divisions, broken into rival factions, as the risen Lord Jesus identified himself to Paul on the road to Damascus with those whom Paul was persecuting. So Paul eventually realized that body is no mere metaphor, 
the risen Lord really has an earthly body composed of his called people, the ecclesia, such as we are here. And precisely as such a real body on the earth, it can be wounded from without, but also injured from within. The ministry of healing thus comes to define not only the ministry of the church to the hurting world, but it also applies indeed urgently to the wounded church. A fractured body of Christ cannot heal the world as it ought. It is itself, it is itself in need of healing. So friends, I've seen in this time of trial in my own little life a kind of microcosm of the state of the church today. Struck down, but not destroyed. Perplexed, but not forsaken. Whether we say in the idiom of Thomas Aquinas that doing follows from being or in the idiom of Martin Luther, that the work follows from the person. In either case, we are pointed thereby to the maimed body of Christ, which we believers have in common. In need of healing from within. That ministry of healing has been the mission of the Center for Catholic and Evangelical Theology, just as in our own local ministries and communities of faith, we are about the healing of hurting bodies and sorrowing souls. Just so concretely and existentially, we become good for others. Thank you. to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.